Welcome to Financial Planning for Entrepreneurs and Tech Professionals. I'm your host, Mike Morton, Chartered Financial Counselor and Financial Advisor. Matt Robeson and I riff on an index investing, market efficiency, and robo-advisors and more. This bonus episode was a discussion following some recordings where we continue the conversation. Enjoy. So this is Matt Robeson. We're doing a little bit of a web extra just for big fans of this show. And as soon as we got off the air with our last episode about robo-advisors, Mike and I just started spitballing. One of the advantages I have about being uh, me in this position talking to an expert like Mike is I get to ask all the dumb questions. And sometimes dumb questions lead to intelligent places. So, Mike, we were just saying, I was wondering, what is the aggregate effect of all of these robo-advisors? Is there a convergence among algorithms? They're all trying to optimize in similar ways. And that means they're all zigging in the same direction as market conditions change, and are you therefore losing some of that portfolio balance that you're supposed to be achieving because you're hedged in different directions? What do you think about all that? So that's making an assumption that there is a zig that makes sense when you see a zag, and there's not. The market research is clear. You have no idea what's coming next. Okay, especially in one to three year time frames, no one can predict which way you should go based on what has just happened. Okay, so all these portfolios the robo advisors are creating are based on historical allocations. They're trying to be most efficient, US, international, small, large companies, small companies. And I believe in all that complexity in terms of having a nice, well rounded, diversified portfolio. But they're also now trying to start to beat the market. Like you say, wow, they're all going to zig or zag in different ways. And they're trying to do that and convince you that this is efficient, right? This is a you know modern portfolio theory. If you go to these websites, that's the kind of stuff you'll be reading. And it's very effective at saying, oh, yeah, this sounds great because they, they couch it in these terms. But the complexity that they're adding is just over the top. So in terms of your question, though, No, I don't think that matters too much because they're all trying to do certain things and this is just passive money. So your other, but your other comment off air, which we didn't start with was you've been reading some research. So why don't you ask that question around funds? Yeah, the The index funds, funds. the the correct. Yeah, this is all parroting my reading, but the implication was so much money has gone into, uh, what was the, the the name of the guy? He died recently, Bogle, who, yeah, who started Bogle, the, the whole Vanguard index fund movement. And so much money, so much capital has moved into these low-cost index funds. And they've taken on the characteristic of zombie investing, which means that so much of the market is moving along, is just churning along, and the money is just going to sit and not be as responsive to new companies, and it's not going to, I'm going to use this word again, efficiently try to steer capital toward great new companies or better investment opportunities. It's not helping the market to distinguish between winners and losers in the marketplace in an intelligent way. Does any of that wash for you? Yeah, so this argument's actually been going on for a while. It's been going on for four or five years or more. And 
No, it doesn't so far. I'm not concerned about it whatsoever from the standpoint of keeping the market quote unquote efficient. I know what you're saying. Pricing assets, like knowing, oh, this company is going bankrupt. Like it, it should be zero. Like you can see the writing on the wall, that kind of thing. And if you don't have anybody actively trading it, it stays at $50 a share instead of being $2 a share. So I'm not concerned about it because it only takes a few people trading to make the, the price, to set the price. It does not take very many people trading to do that. So we've got a whole industry of people analyzing every single company, making market recommendations. This is all of Wall Street. It's what they do full time. They analyze companies. They're investing in and out of different sectors, different company, individual stocks. they are got analysts on all these different stocks. So I'm not concerned about it from that standpoint. You also have a lot of influx of day traders, lots of message boards on all these things. So I think the pricing of assets will still stay very efficient from that standpoint. Because again, it doesn't take too many people to move this around. You could look at crypto and look at how volatile that is. And 98% of it never changes hands. Well, I was going to actually bring up a similar example. GameStop, which was essentially a Reddit message board. Some of it was speculation. Some of it had the characteristic of a Ponzi scheme. It's like, hey, you guys hold... I'm yeah. not going to, but you guys really <laughs> Keep my should. diamond hands. Yeah, yeah. It sounds great for you. So clearly there's that phenomenon, right, where people are trying to take advantage of this kind of like crowdsourcing. Let's all get in on this, make it move. Some of that was also a political statement, a, a big what to Wall Street. <laughs> but I, I don't know. It, it worries me a little bit, and I think it's beginning to worry oversight functions in Congress a little bit as well, that you have a segment of the market that's like way over-responsive, that is really divorced from price formation, this kind of GameStop segment, where they're not really responding to business plans, to research, to business reality. This is a stock that probably should not be anywhere close to the value it achieved. On the other hand, you have the zombie component of investing, all this money in index funds. And it reminds me a little bit of the example of the guy with his head in the icebox and his feet in the oven. And on average, he feels fine. But you're saying you only need a few rational investors to, in most cases, do real price formation and set well, a, a market-based price. Even the AMC example is... Um pretty illustrative of what can happen. It doesn't take a lot of people to really move a stock. And so that's interesting. Wow. It doesn't take too many. Uh, A message board can really move these things around. So that's bizarre. And you're like, that company can't be possibly worth that much. But if you have an index fund, it's such a small portion of your index fund that it doesn't really matter. What's interesting is that luckily the company is able to take advantage of the craziness and sell more stock and raise a bunch of money. So it may have saved the company that you shouldn't have been saved, potentially. So that's interesting. The more interesting thing to me, though, around the zombies investing is more the governance. And I think that is a big deal. That it used to be, look, Matt, you and I would hold a share, some shares of Coca-Cola. Right. And we'd follow, like, what's going on with the board? And we hold these shares. I got paper that says I own 10 shares of this thing. And we'd get some uh, stuff in the mail. And it would say, look, we're having a, a board meeting and you get to vote your shares. Uh, should we do X, Y, or Z? And that has really gone down because now everybody holds index funds. I'm not getting these proxies or I ignore them because they come through email and my email's overloaded. 
or who even votes them. If you have an index fund, maybe it's BlackRock, that's your index fund holder, and they have the voting power because it's held in street name. So there's all these different layers of complexity. But in terms of governance, that could be a real issue where the companies now have much more power to just do what they want to because the shareholders just simply aren't voting like they used to. Right, because it dilutes the voice of the shareholders. Does BlackRock actually get an exercise voting power in that scenario if they're managing these index funds? I seem to recall that maybe they do. Yeah, that's what I've been reading that too, Matt. And unfortunately, I don't have a straight answer to just give you. I know that those fund holders, so there's BlackRock, who's massive. Vanguard is obviously massive. That's who your index fund is through. I think that if you're invested in the index funds, you've given them the right to be voting for those shares. I think that's the case. That's my recollection. Yeah, at least that's what I've been reading. And what are the, how are those guys going to vote? And I think they might even have the option to either vote or pass it through. I'm not sure because that's been some of the questions in the media. It's like, what's going to happen with all these votes? Either way, you could mathematically see how it could be a problem because either you have three, four, five massive purveyors of index funds holding an incredible voting position in all the companies that, that make up the core of the markets, or if you subtract all those votes out. It just (laughs) magnifies the voting power of whoever remains. And that means that existing boards who who may hold a lot of the stock may exercise proportionally more power. And as you suggested a moment ago, you know, that then they get to exercise it. They get to essentially without any rudder or anchor or any restraining force from or some part of a boat some not look i'm not a sailor okay <laughs> let's be clear about that i actually i, I yeah i canoeing is, is about as far as i go without any restraining force whatsoever from shareholders who you have to win over to the stuff you're doing they can do what they want now i get the sense that no one really knows what the effect of something like that is it could be totally benign there could be circumstances where it's yeah. like eh, this isn't so good Yeah, that's where I'd be more concerned. Rather than the setting of prices and and keeping the market efficient in terms of which companies have value and are are making serious money, which ones are in trouble and making sure the share prices are set. I'm not as concerned about that. I think we have a long way to go in terms of adding to index funds and the zombie investors, as you put it. But the governance thing, I think is a bigger question mark to keep an eye on. Let me ask then, taking this full circle to the robots, the robo-advisors, what happens then let's say instead of the old target date fund which is essentially an index fund i am going with a robo advisor is that sort of the same thing or am i investing in the individual stocks and thereby am i retaining those voting rights yeah so right now it's mostly index funds robo advisors are giving you a portfolio of 10 to 20 different index funds So that would operate just as if you own those funds directly. However, we did mention the direct indexing. Robo-advisors are doing that, but also you can go to other places and do direct indexing yourself. But some robo-advisors are starting to do that. And so there, yeah, you own directly all uh, 1,000 companies, shares in 1,000 different companies, and you own them directly. Now, Matt, if you've signed up for a robo-advisor and you own 1,000 companies, are you really getting all those proxies? You 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 could spend your whole life. Right, exactly. So it has the same effect practically, which is there goes the corporate governance. Now, look, I don't sense that there's such a huge segment of the market that's doing the robo-advising where that's really... No, but I think the point is 
we've shifted over the last 50 years. It used to be like you'd own five or 10 companies and you'd have those shares. I believe in Coca-Cola, just buy 10 shares or GE, buy 20 shares. And you'd own those and you'd get the proxies and you care about it because you own five or 10 different companies. You'd really care. And in today's world, it's buy a Vanguard index fund. I own a thousand companies and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about getting those kind of diversified returns across that whole index fund, but I don't care about the individual companies anymore. Let me, let me ask you this. We just did an episode about speculation versus <laughs> trading versus investing. And you pointed out like, first of all, people use those terms a little too interchangeably and they shouldn't. But Look, when my kids are sometimes behaving like maniacs, as all kids do, I sometimes just stop them and say, hey, guys, what you're doing right now, tell me why it's good. Just give me the argument for why there's any redeeming value whatsoever to the fact that you are sitting on your brother's head right now. Why is this good? I sometimes have that same feeling when it comes to some of this stuff on Wall Street. Why is it good? I definitely had that feeling back during the financial crisis. I think a lot of us did, where you're creating these credit default swaps and then you're collateralizing them into these mezzanine CDOs and then you're trading tranches of them interchangeably. And I had Wall Street people tell me, no, Matt, this really is good because it allows us to manage risk in these super optimized ways, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. That has a certain width to it of it's crossing that line from trading for the purpose of investing to speculation. And I guess what I worry about a little bit with the robo-advisor discussion and with the index fund discussion is I just wonder, are we losing what's good about investing in Wall Street and about the existence of Wall Street? The original point was you have a company. They need to raise capital. They issue stocks so that they can raise capital and so that investors can get a piece of their success. So why is that good for companies? It's good because we need more companies doing good things and creating products and services. This is, after all, a capitalist economy. Why is it good for me as an investor? Because I can use my brain or I can talk to smart people like you, Mike, and I can have people advise me and I could say, you know what? Coca-Cola, that's a good bet. I don't like the bet that I'm going to place on Pepsi. No diss on Pepsi. It's (laughs) disgusting. But I I want to make a bet here. I I buy what they're doing here as a company. And so there was this efficient price formation. The more complexity that we add through index funds is decreasing, but they're taking more and more of a role in the market. And then we have robo-advisors. And then we have these complicated financial instruments. The more it feels to me like it's losing the point the core point of the existence of a stock market, the good in it for companies, the good in it for investors. Am I making any sense in any of this? I didn't really listen to most of it because I was still stuck on what your kids responded when you asked them, what is the good of you sitting on your brother's head? What was the answer? (laughs) All my kids are budding lawyers. They always have a smart answer. That's right. And it's usually they cite precedent that's dad. Do you remember two weeks ago when you said it's important for people to learn lessons by having painful experiences that they can learn from? I'm giving my brother a painful experience right now. I'm hoping he'll learn the lesson. Not to let people sit on his head. And my guess is that they throw a lot of the word fair 
in there. Someone else is sitting in my head, so this is only fair that I sit on their head. Look, read the Chris Voss book, uh, Never Split the Difference. He's the former lead hostage negotiator, international hostage negotiator for the FBI. And he has a whole chapter on the use of the word fair and what a loaded word it is and why you should not use the word fair. Yes, you're right. I use it all the time now because I've just transitioned to life is no longer fair. So I love it. My kids say that's not fair. It's just, yep, that's great. That's why I got you this treat and I didn't get it for your brother because it wasn't. And that's that's why you were sitting on your brother's head because you should learn that lesson. And now you have. All right. What was the rest of your question? The rest of my question is, is there anything good as we, as we robo advisors and like index funds owning a third of the market, et cetera, like the more complicated this gets, are we losing what is good about markets? Yeah. Here's my take on that is Wall Street is there to sell products. They're just like any other company. Just think of Wall Street as a company. They have to constantly create products that you're interested in buying. And the CDOs and collateralized loans and tranches of things, it's all creating products that they could sell. Hey, we did this thing that's got this cool spin and all this marketing stuff so that we could sell. The robo-advisors are starting to head that way, in my opinion. Index funds are fantastic. They're very easy to understand and they're very low cost and they're very efficient. Target date funds are just a simple uh, amalgamation of a couple of those. I like them because they're very good for the end client. They're very good for individuals because without any thought, you're going to do really well. It's a great fund. It's a great mechanism for you to stay the course over the period of decades and do the right thing for you without getting caught up with, I don't know what I should do and this and that and the other thing. Okay, so they're very good. Complexity never favors the buyer. It's always favoring the seller because it's complex. So you don't really understand it, Matt, but let me tell you why it's going to be great for you. And I can tell you a great story. And this is all products, all marketing. Do you really need this detergent? Probably not, but it just sounds so great. I'm going to buy that one. So that's all products and all marketing. And that's what Wall Street is. They're there to sell products. And it used to be the case, like you said, look, doing the IPOs and raising funds from individuals, to do trading at all, you needed to go through brokers. But now with the internet, it's added complexity, but also reduced cost and ease of access to some of these things that if we can keep it simple for individual investors, that's where the individual investor wins. Yeah, I guess the takeaway for me is, look, obviously my background is in government. And to me, it's a useful measuring stick for government. You don't want to overregulate. You don't want to kill innovation. You don't want to have a heavy hand coming in and and trying to pick winners and losers, certainly in the market, and, and also get too far into, hey, Wall Street, you can do these products, but not these products. I get all that. I do think that it's a useful yardstick to say, all right, why is this good? Why is this useful for the market, either for the company side? Why is this good for the economy? Why is this good for business or for the investor side? And I guess, look, that to me, I I know this whole discussion is like a global market governance, the future of markets type discussion. But I do think bringing it full circle to where you were going at the end there to individual investors who may be listening to this, to me, it seems like if it's so complicated that I couldn't explain it maybe to one of my kids, or you couldn't explain it to me, I probably don't want to mess around with it. And by the way, maybe government really should take a look at it. That's not my pig, not my farm, but maybe this just is not 
something that we should be messing around with if we've lost that connection to what's good. For me as an individual investor, if it's simple enough that I can explain it and I can understand it, what I hear you saying is there are enough good, clear options out there that I don't have to mess around with the like super duper complicated stuff. I can just do those and I'm going to do great. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. That if you can't explain it, don't put your money into it because we talked about too, having a thesis, understanding your process, like what you're investing in. You have to do that. You have to understand what you're doing with your money and when to pull the plug on it, why it's working, why it's not working. And the more complex, if you don't understand, you're just handing that to someone else and crossing your fingers and hoping that. And hoping that they're treating you fairly and, and you're getting a good deal. All right, well, look, this started out as a little web extra. It's turned into a full episode. So I'm going to go ahead and close out. This has been an episode of Real Financial Planning with Mike Morton. Thanks for a fascinating discussion. It's great as always, Matt. Thanks for joining us on Financial Planning for Entrepreneurs. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me at LinkedIn or MortonFinancialAdvice.com. I'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or question, please email me at financialplanningpod at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered for investment advice. Opinions expressed as are of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. We do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the data presented here.